Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. It's Meghna Chakrabarty here with an On Point podcast special drop. In the main show, we had a fascinating exploration of whether the rise of artificial intelligence might be the best new argument for universal basic income. And if you're wondering about how those two might possibly be related, I highly encourage you to listen to that episode. In it, we talk with two of my favorite authors, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham. Together, they're the duo who created the world of The Expanse, an award-winning sci-fi novel series which is also a terrific TV show. There was so much more to my conversation with Ty and Daniel than we could fit into that main on-point hour. So today, we've got the full, unedited conversation with them for you. Now, I'm hoping that there's a significant overlapping portion of the Venn diagram between on-point listeners and Expanse fans, because you're going to hear everything from their love for public radio to what Ty and Daniel are working on next. Here it is, and I hope you enjoy. Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you for having us. Okay, so what year, in what year, does the story of The Expanse begin? <laughs> well, we, um, we very carefully never say. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we sort of imply, but uh, when, you, when you actually put a date on things, people start doing calculations and figuring out why it couldn't have happened by that date. So we just sort of apply, imply it's a couple hundred years in the future um, and leave it at that. Okay. But it's, yeah, it's, it's far enough in the future where humans have colonized the solar system. We've got billions of humans and somewhat evolved humans living out there. Um, and they take all their political problems with them because apparently we can never learn. But what is Earth like in this several hundred uh, year future as imagined by you both? Well, it's very populated. There's um, billions of people living in it, and um, many of them are uh, out of work. Many of them are idle or uh, at the mercy of kind of governmental bureaucracies. And uh, many of them are running the infrastructure that lets the rest of them survive. Tell me, tell me more about that. What's that infrastructure? Well, the the idea is that that Earth is a largely jobless place. Um, that automation, you know, uh, in the in the pre conversation we talked a little about AI. That AI and automation um, have rendered most jobs obsolete, and so the bureaucracy is how do you keep you know dozens of billions of people fed and housed and and occupied when most of them will never have anything resembling a job. Um, how did you come up with this idea? Was there anything sort of in your present lives or our present world that made you think, hey, this is not only kind of an interesting narrative or storyline to follow, but it seems within that that realm of possibility that makes really good fiction that much more, um, you, you know, uh, pulls you in that much more. Uh, well, <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, so I, I come out of the corporate world. That's that was you know for twenty some years uh, before I was a writer, I was just a, a 
first an operations manager and then later an executive. And the the thing that operations was always trying to do is get rid of all the people. Um, that was that was always sort of the unspoken mission statement. You know, if you could replace all of your factory work or your warehouse workers with automated picking systems, you tried to figure out how to do that. Um, people are expensive. People steal. Uh, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of internal pressure to get humans out of the system. Humans are always a failure point in the system from the operations perspective. And so just I've always had that sort of sense that the minute we can get rid of all the people, we will. Uh, because, you know, I worked in a world where that was like an ongoing mission statement. And um yeah. Yeah, the the, but, the my my version of this was not from uh, kind of the the management end exactly. I was I did ten years of frontline tech support, and the thing that I saw was the way that jobs got larger and larger, and more and more duties fell to people, and it became more and more um, important to capture intelligence and operations knowledge in systems. Instead of people, because as the people, you know, transferred out, or or the just the cognitive load got big enough that no one person could handle it, you had to have a system that held the institutional knowledge, or the institutional knowledge would be lost. Wow. Okay, I'm going to digress here for just a second. Um, how did you come up with the idea for? I mean, the overall arc of the stories in the Expanse series. I, I asked Ty. I said, Ty, what happens? And he told me. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Because it's so good. I, I mean, this idea that this protomolecule comes from a, like an asteroid from far away and it just upends everything about humanity uh, and that we can't really handle it very well because we're just really good at taking our political problems with us wherever we go in this universe. It's just, it's really, really that's, good. That's just, that's just history. That is, that's every major uh, uh, technological advance in human history um, pushed forward into a, a new scenario. But we've been doing that same pattern of the organism not changing and the structures around the organism being transformed by technology since we came up with like fire. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. That, that, I mean, I'm sure that the first thing some prehistoric man did when he discovered how to set things on fire is he started setting his neighbors on fire. <laughs> Um, that's, that's just the way, that's just the way we work. You know, we've, we, we found gunpowder. The Chinese were like, Hey, look, we can make fireworks. Everyone else was like, look, we can fling lead at each other with this stuff. It's great. Okay. Ah. We, we, we built, uh, machine looms and we put a bunch of people out of work cause we could, cause, cause the operations center at the, the guild hall was like, Oh yeah, we can lose all these guys. We have this loom. And then you had Luddites, and it hasn't. I mean, it's it all rhymes. It all it all looks very familiar when you start looking back. Yeah. Okay. I promise not to have too many more digressions into how did you do this? How did you come up with this character? How did you do? Why did you do such to so and so? Because I would really run out of time. So let's get back to what I was uh, the purpose of this conversation. Okay. So tell us who Bobby Draper is. 
Bobby Draper is a Martian um, in in the sense that humans live on Mars, and she's a human who lives on Mars, and her family has lived on Mars for generations. Uh, she serves in the Martian Marine Corps, so she's uh, active duty Marine at the beginning of the story, and she is the gunnery sergeant for her uh, her company. Mm. You know, in one show in the past that we did, I think it had to do with the United States Space Force. I just threw out an oblique reference to Bobby Draper's boot print on Mars, and I got a <laughs> bunch of email and tweets from people who are like, yes, expanse, expanse uh, uh, mention in On Point. So I want you to know that your fans also listen to this show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, hello to the fans. <laughs> so through for various reasons, which unfortunately we do not have time to get into, Bobby Draper, a human born on Mars, uh, ends up visiting Earth, okay? And the reason for this conversation that I really want to talk to both of you has to do with one particular scene in the books. And in fact, the book's treatment is um, longer and more detailed than uh, t- television would allow. But the scene is also in TV. And it's where Martian Marine Bobby Draper first ventures outside in New York City, outside of the UN compound where she's staying. So... But before we get into um, describing that scene, is there a story behind how the two of you came up with that scene and what happens to Bobby? Does it serve a particular purpose uh, in the overall arc of understanding the world of The Expanse? Yeah, so I... Take it. Okay, well, I I, so I wrote Bobby in that book. Um, We don't always split the books up by character, but in that one we did. And so I wrote the Bobby stuff. And as I recall, that was a sort of, I don't remember outlining that, that chapter much. Uh, we, we usually extensively outline stuff before we write, but that one, we kind of just, I kind of just wung it or winged it, <laughs> whatever you want to say. Um, and, and mostly what, you know, we, the, the, I think, as I recall, the outline was just Bobby visits earth. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about as I wrote it, if I'm remembering correctly, is how our version of, so, you know, no matter what country you live in, you have the people that you think of as your enemies, right? You know, in, in the cold war, the Soviet union was our enemy. Um, and so we had this idea of what Soviets were like, what living in the Soviet union was like, what, uh, what the population and, and political structures were like. And, what it turns out to be true is we're almost always wildly wrong because whenever we think of an enemy, we think of the propaganda about that enemy. And so Bobby had lived her entire life with the propaganda about earth and who earthers were and the things that they cared about. And so she gets this moment where she gets to just walk around on earth and meet people from earth and realize that her, the story she'd been sold on on who these people were isn't wrong isn't correct and it's just that moment of oh i had i had turned these people into a caricature because that was what the propaganda did and in reality they're not that they're something else um and and i think mostly it was driven by i my father or excuse me my, my grandfather fought in world war ii and he talked about you know, guys he served with who went to Japan after the war and realized how wrong they had been about who and what the Japanese were. And, and, 
how that was sort of a wake up call about how you, you know, you turn the enemy into like a monster, but you know, they're just people too. And so it was just sort of a scene of her having that moment. Okay. We're going to talk in a couple of minutes about what that Martian propaganda was that she um, had grown up with. But the way that you put it now, it suddenly makes the fact that she's also experiencing this kind of physical vertigo from being, um, you know, on Earth, 1G, uh, trying to find the horizon. She's like kind of wobbling around. But she's also got this intellectual vertigo in a sense that you're that you're describing. But can you can you both describe how that scene begins? <laughs> I don't remember. I read actually, it like I, eleven years I, ago. And I, I actually <laughs> just, I just, I just reread this one. I just reread Caliban like uh, about a month ago. It begins you did? with her. I did. Why? No joke. <laughs> because it's good. <laughs> I was, I, I was. You know, I was wanting something that wasn't real hard, you know, and I kind of knew what the story was already. And I, I'd never actually, I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't read it. I lied. I listened to it on uh, the, the recorded book because I've never actually listened to the Jefferson Mays performance of it. And I, yeah. I wanted to. So yeah, um, that one begins with uh, Bobby walking out of the UN uh, complex and a, an Earth Marine, um, Kind of easing her out into the world, so, and, and somebody who who has that kind of you know shared experience, but from the other side, um, treating her gently, showing her some kinship, um, helping her make the transition to to um, an outside that doesn't have a dome over it, an outside that's just air and you know the unshielded nuclear reaction of the sun, and um, and then her moving into the world and and running into uh, somebody who is well, like a low level worker, like a fast food worker, um, who talks about basic and how basic isn't money, and just having this this kind of cultural uh, moment where where Bobby resets and sees what the uh, what the lived experience is on the ground here. Yeah. Okay. So. Gosh, you know, I read Caliban's War so long ago also that I am trying to remember the name of the guy who she runs into. Um, do you remember his name? I don't think the the guy who was in the the show, I don't think was the guy who we had in the book. I think oh. he was a show show specific dude. Okay. Um well, okay. Yeah, you remember, in the show, I, his, I know what he he's looks. Nico. That's right. Yeah, That's okay. Right. In, he's Nico in the show, but uh, I don't remember if we even gave him a name in the book. I he's don't, just I like don't. the Marine who's guarding the thing. Yeah, and I don't think he was a Marine in the show. No, he's he, not a Marine some, in the show. That's right. There were some, in, in the some sh- shifts. Yeah, because in the show, Nico is um, a guy living under a bridge, essentially. Um, and he, he teaches her... Well, how to not fall over. Um, and then also he's the one who explains basic because he, he's on basic waiting for a job. Yeah. And, yep. and I, I, just to clarify, he's not living under a bridge. He's down there helping people. Oh, um, okay. Even and, in the, in and, the show? Be, because, yes. Because on basic you have housing. You're not living, you're not living under bridges. Um, he's down there helping people. He's, he's, he's acting as sort of an unofficial medic for the people down in that part of town. And those people are what we call the undocumented. The Got people it. who who were born off the list and so are not, do not have access to basic. 
Okay, so tell me what is the list? Yeah, so so if you're if you're a legal birth, um, you are every legal birth is a citizen, and every citizen has the right to some basic services. Um, and so by by if you're on the list, you are somebody who was born in a hospital. It was it was recorded by the you know by the hospital, and you are a citizen and have access to to basic services. And those basic, go ahead. Basic services are like, yeah, you, you, there is a place to live. It may not be in the city you want it to be, but there is, there will be a roof over your head. You may have roommates you don't like, but there will be a roof over your head. You will have clothes. They may be made out of paper, but you will have them. There will be enough food for you to stay alive. There will be kind of minimum uh, health care. Nothing heroic, but, you know, more than you would have uh, if you didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a basket of goods and services that everybody has access to. Okay. And they automatically, again, if they're legal, automatically get basic. Yes. Okay. And then, so regarding coming off of basic, you have to get a job, but there's like all these long waiting lists for training and or jobs. Yeah. So if, yeah. if yeah, the the idea is jobs are a scarce commodity. Um, that that uh, employment is is imp- employment opportunities are scarce, and at the same time, you're in this system where to get access to additional training and higher education, you have to prove that you're able to work at a job. So you're, a lot of people wind up in this no win situation where, in order to get the training they want, they have to have worked some number of years at a job to qualify and jobs are incredibly scarce and the training is scarce. And so you wind up in this sort of this circular no win situation where uh, it's almost impossible to get off of basic. Okay. And if I remember correctly, as you said earlier, and in the books, ba- the creation of basic as a means to minimally support millions upon millions of people in the expanses world who can never get a job. That's it. Is that a direct response from the, you know, the fictional UN that's running earth to manage the fact that so many people will never be able to work? Yeah, it is. And, and it's a combination of things. So it's, it, you know, like almost everything, it's not just one thing that causes something to happen. I mean, the reason that the UN has so much uh, general bureaucratic power in the world of the expanse is because planet Earth went through a near fatal uh, ecological collapse in the history of Earth, in the history of the expanse, I should say. And so, uh, in order to survive that, the only way to to get everybody doing the same stuff so that they could survive was to give increasing authority to this sort of central body, which is the UN. So. In that system, that you have this central body that has increased authority, and you also have uh, a, a planet that is trying to recover from massive ecological collapse. You have a huge population that needs to be fed and housed. All of those things are sort of related. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you are forgiven for confusing Earth's actual near future in the world of the expanse, <laughs> um, sadly. But okay, so so then. With that as the description of what basic is in the world of the expanse, what was Bobby told? What specifically was that propaganda, that Martian propaganda she grew up with about how the rulers or the the leaders of Mars described 
uh, life on Earth? Well, Mars is a very different culture. Um, it's working with very different um, constraints and, and plants. They're, they're an entire society built around a gigantic single technological project, terraforming their planet. Everybody on Mars works. Everybody is expected to work. Everybody is expected to work at very high capacity. Um, so seeing a world where people have air and water and food and this this bounty that is still generations away for the Martian culture, it's they look lazy. They look um, like they're taking advantage. They look like they're slow. They look like they're greedy. They look like they're dumb. Um, they look like a lot of some of our descriptions of people on welfare. Um, they're takers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's you know. So when I was when I was a kid, uh, my my parents were very conservative, and I remember one of the things my father was always saying is, if you don't have a job, it's because you don't want a job. And he had grown up in a time period when jobs were fairly plentiful. He always worked. He always had access to work. And whenever unemployment went up, whenever he met people who didn't have access to employment, he made a lot of assumptions about them, um, that, that they must be lazy. They must not want to work. And the, the fact that jobs are a commodity that can be difficult to procure sometimes for a variety of economic and sociological reasons, that never occurred to him. And I think there were a lot of people of his generation who had that same attitude. And, st- and still do have that attitude. Like, well, you must just be lazy if you don't have a job. And anything beyond that is sort of ignored by them. Uh-huh. And so that, you know, you look at a planet like Mars where unemployment is basically non-existent. Um, that, that's an easy trap to fall into. Well, they don't have, they don't have jobs, so they must just be lazy. Because if you want a job, you have a job. Because mm-hmm. on Mars, everybody has a job. And that goes right back to what Ty was saying about making cartoons out of your enemy. You know, the propaganda that comes from simplifying the lives of the people that you see yourself in conflict with. Mm -hmm. So then Bobby experiences the reality of how basic works and what it means for the people who are on it when she takes that, uh, I'll call it the fateful sojourn uh, around New York. How does... I'm asking you all these questions, and I, I get it. You wrote the book a long time ago, but how how does she um, how does she feel in response to the clash between what she had been told uh, growing up on Mars versus what she sees on the streets of New York? I, I mean, I think it, more than anything, the the point of it in the book is that it humanizes what she thought of as her enemy. That they're not just this faceless blob of of evil that is trying to destroy everything she cares about. It's it's humans who have things that they want and and have struggles and and have things that they care about. And anytime you humanize your enemy, it's very hard to keep them as the enemy. And in the book, the importance of this was that was what allowed her to then cooperate with Vasarala, mm-hmm. who is you know an important political figure on Earth that humanizing Earthers meant Avasarala wasn't just the leader of this faceless horde of enemies. She was a person, and so she could be listened to. Okay. You know, one of the things that, was, that showed up over and over throughout 
our work on the expanse is um, the importance of complicating people and the importance of humanizing folks who you're being driven to simplify. Um, I don't know if that was consciously a response to our, our current world or if it's just, you know, evergreen. But either way, I think that's sort of close to the bone uh, morally of what we were responding to with the with the story. Okay. Yeah, and 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 to and to continue with what Daniel's saying, one of the things that we always try to do with every character in the expanse is give them problems that they couldn't solve using their default move. So if you have Bobby Draper who is a, you know, incredibly competent and capable warrior, uh, marine, uh, very lethal, give her problems she cannot solve by shooting them and force her outside of the comfort of her normal moves. So uh, that was one of the things there too, is, is put Bobby in a situation where she can't just shoot her way out of it, make her, make her uh, deal with problems uh, with other, you know, humanize her a little more. Okay. You know, um, I want to thank you for pronouncing Christian Avasarala's name. <laughs> Because for all these years, I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce her last name. Uh, we don't know we got it right either. We, we wrote this down. We're not. But nobody. Never has a woman dropped with us first. Well, uh, good. I'm, I'm glad that it, that can be subject to interpretation because never has a woman dropped so many f bombs that I've loved more uh, than her. <laughs> um, okay, so we know what Bobby was told. We 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 get a sense as to what she's seeing regarding what the truth of what basic is. Um, I guess you already asked this question. It sounds like it does. That tension reflects um, what you described as people's real life differences of opinion um, regarding welfare. Do you think those same, does it reflect the tensions that exist and could even more more exist with uh, the idea around universal basic income as it might apply in reality on our earth today? Well, just just to clarify, this is an important point. The basic of the expanse is not universal basic income. Mm -hmm. um, because universal basic income is you, you give people money and you let them spend it how they want to spend it to, you know, buy a house or buy a car or start a business or buy a video game console, they get to spend it however they want. In The Expanse, basic is the services provided by the government, but no income provided with them. Mm -hmm. So you get vouchers for food, you get vouchers for clothes, you get vouchers for housing, um, vouchers for healthcare, but those vouchers are not usable to buy other things. You can't take a food voucher and buy a Xbox with it. And so it is much more centralized and controlled and deliberately you know, paternalistic. It, it's, you can't be trusted with money. So we're going to spend the money for you and give you the things that you should be spending the money on. So it's, it's not nearly as, uh, universal basic income treats the citizens as grownups who know how to spend their own money. The basic of the expanse is not treating the citizens like grownups. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, that's, that, that's a very crucial distinction. And I'm glad you, you clarified it. In addition to that though, there's still the fact that, um, kind of the, the the moral similarity, I would say, is that people are being given something. In, in, they're being given something instead of just letting them die on the streets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's so there's your there's your moral question. Which is which is more morally upstanding? 
giving somebody undeserving something that they don't deserve or letting them die on the street. What do you think? Well, I know what my answer is, but I'll let the, yeah, my... I'll let the audience answer it in that very pregnant pause. <laughs> I, 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 also, I also think that the reason you wind up with basic in the expanse, or at least my sort of reasoning, is that basic is, easy, and it is an easier sell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if it, you hear, you know, you hear the conversation about universal basic income and, and it gets very heated very quickly. You know, I, I had to work for my money. Why should other people just get it for free? Um, I think, I think if you're selling a, the populace on a system to keep people from dying in the streets, as Daniel says, I think, you, uh, I think basic is an easier sell. It's like, well, we're not giving them any money. They're not going to spend it on drugs and pornography. We're giving them a place to live. They were giving them some food. Um, and, and sort of the, the conservative backlash to any sort of help for, you know, less advantaged people, you can sort of allay that a little bit with the, no, don't worry. They're not going to be spending on crack. They're, you know, we'll just buy. We'll just give them a house. We'll just give them some clothes. They're, they can't use it to buy drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, think that, that becomes be a, hard how you sell it. And it won't be a good house. And there won't be good clothes. <laughs> and it won't be good food. There won't be a nice life. It won't be pleasant. They'll still suffer. So that's okay. <laughs> right. Well. No. <laughs> Was that the line? I never know. <laughs> Is that the one that's going to make it? Yeah. Um, but so the reason why I have been a lifelong lover of science fiction is because in my mind, it's fiction now, but fact later. Um, and so do you think that it's possible sometime in the maybe not even that that distant of a future where a scenario like this could actually come to pass, the too many people, not enough jobs scenario, so that some kind of ad- additional assistance is going to be required to keep many people who once worked full time afloat. Yeah, I mean, I think we're almost there now. I, I, th- I mean, I think I think we're getting close to that point. And, and fortunate, we're fortunate enough to live in a country where people aren't just en masse dying in the streets, although we certainly have... a, a portion of our population that is dying in the streets, but it's small enough we can kind of ignore it right now. But there are still plenty of places in the world where people are dying in the streets. And I think as time goes on, um, and and the other thing that we're seeing right now is a, is a massive growth in economic disparity. You know, the the upper class and the, the lower class have never been further apart in American history. It, it's just, and the middle class is sort of in the process of disappearing. So I think we're we're pushing up on that moment already. I'd be very curious to see what the next, you know, if I live long enough to see what the next 20, 30 years bring on on how we're going to handle that when you know, if 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 a, if the predictions are true and what we think of as AI, which I don't I what we have right now is not actually AI, but but what we're talking about what we're calling AI, this this massive uh, learning and filing system that we're calling AI, if it gets good enough that it can replace a lot of jobs, and automation is also replacing jobs. At some point, we're going to have to look at that and go, "What are we going to do with all these people? We have to do something with them. We can't, as Daniel says, we can't just let them die in the street because it's unsanitary to have corpses all over the place." Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't make me laugh when you're making such a like a morally weighty point. Okay, <laughs> it just undermines my professionalism. But you know, we 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 saw this report 
um, I don't know if you have two. It came out from, from Bloomberg a little earlier this year. And they were saying within the next several years, definitely within our lifetimes, they estimate that some 300 million jobs worldwide uh, will be lost due to AI. And I'm wondering if as you've seen, um, you know, like news stories or reports like that, you keep, did the two of you ever think, oh my God, this is like literally the world that we wrote about in the Expanse books? I think it's more uh, like, yep, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, to go back to Ty's point, the I, I am one of three people who is not particularly impressed by uh, AI at the moment. But mm-hmm. automation, I'm very impressed by. And robotics, I'm very impressed by. And the centralization of things like agriculture uh, into factory settings and uh, economies of scale, I'm very impressed by. So I... I I can be a little bit skeptical of AI and still be just as scared by what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. I take your point about automation, but I'm going to set it aside and just focus a little bit more on AI. Um, do you, do either, Whatever makes you happy. <laughs> do either of you ever think about or wonder how AI could impact your lives and your work? You want to take that one? I, I, no, I don't I spend a lot a of time worrying about it. I mean, the, the, the reality is if you have AI write a story right now, it's a terrible story. <laughs> And the and the thing that the thing that the the current you know brand of AI does is it it does it does not innovate. So my 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 illustration for what current AI does is if you ask AI for a sandwich, it goes out and it takes a hundred thousand sandwiches and it grinds them into a fine paste. It puts that paste in a sandwich shaped mold and it molds you something that is made of the ingredients that other sandwiches are made of, and it is the shape of a sandwich. But it will taste terrible. Um, and so right now, the, the the version that we have is not innovating. It's not making anything new. It's just take, it's taking a sampling of 100,000 other things and sort of squishing them into an object, the shape you asked for. In the future, could we have AI that will innovate? Yeah, but that would be true AI, which we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm not that worried about it. Plus, I'm old. So if my job goes away, I'm basically ready to retire anyway. So <laughs> the computers are allowed to have my job at this point. Well, you know what? I do have... I do have some friends who are working in kind of the the uh, clickbait farms who I think they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. I think the folks who are, you know, making listicles for a, a living, um, I think the AI or applied statistics or whatever you want to call it that we have right now can fake that well enough that um, there are some of those jobs that could be in trouble. Mm-hmm. I don't do that, so I'm not as worried personally. Yeah. But you know what's so interesting to me is uh, we're talking to both of you, the creators of the world of The Expanse and the novels, because I mean, well, it's, they're all your ideas. <laughs> they're your creative um, – the result of your creative imagination. But also, I mean, we couldn't even talk to the writers of the TV series or the actors if we wanted to because right now the entertainment industry is being gripped by a strike that's – uh, a union strike that's fighting over this exact issue about how AI is going to have an impact on the entertainment industry, and could it make could it make writers or flesh and blood actors obsolete? So, in a sense, like the future that you describe or create for us in the expanse is kind of already parts of it are kind of already here. Yeah. Now, yeah, and there I, and there are certainly you know I mean could could an AI um, come up with an outline for a reality show? Probably they're all kind of the same, um, and and the big thing for the actors right now is not that 
I mean, for writers, I, I don't think anybody's worried that AI is going to start writing all the scripts. That's, I don't think that's a huge issue. I think more down that side, it's the, um, should, should AI be allowed to train on scripts that it doesn't own is more of an issue there. But the, for the actors, the real issue there is deep fakes, which are a real thing, which exists right now that, saying you can't just 3d scan me and then just use me in your show without hiring me to act in the show, which is a real issue right now. There, I mean, there are, there are real conversations about taking all the background actors, all the, you know, hire a bunch of background actors, you scan them all, and then you just have them available to throw into scenes when you want them. You don't have to hire them. You don't have to bring them out. You don't have to pay them for the day and feed them for the day. You just throw their image in and you pay them a one-time fee for use of that image. That's a real issue right now. And I think that's a much bigger issue than AI writing scripts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, you've, you've given us, given me like so much great, so much great material uh, for helping us launch this hour on um, universal basic income. I, I've got some, a few more quick questions though, but before I get to my like last little set of fan questions, is there anything <laughs> else about, um, about UBI or how basic works in the expanse or about, you know, the future that we've been talking about that, that you want to add that you think is, is important for folks to hear? So I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, speak for an obscure little short story we, we published in Wired called The Hunger After You're Fed. It's not actually an expanse story. It's it's another story that deals with some of these issues. And the thing that I think you need to, to focus on when you start looking at um, a, oh, a culture that actually takes care of all of its people to a basic level, um, that kind of paternalistic vibe, is how do you, how can you build uh, a meaningful life in a post-scarcity environment? How do, you, how do you wind up having meaningful work if it's not being measured by how much money you make? Um, I think that's when you when we start talking about this kind of universal system, uh, what does it mean to live a good life winds up being kind of the central question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So glad you said that, because that's a question I'm going to be putting to our guests who uh, will be joining us for the for the live hour. Uh, OK, so a few fan Take questions. It. Go. Do you have a favorite character? In the book series, <laughs> you—I know you I get asked that like all the time. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Who's your favorite child? Exactly. That's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is all of them your? <laughs> both of your well, answers. I mean, we 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 like all of them because we we played in all of them. We were in all of their heads. I mean, there's if we didn't like them, we wouldn't have written them. But um, I will say that there was never a. A draft of a script or a book that uh, Ty didn't get the last pass on Amos. Ah, oh, okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense because I don't. There may be some people who who haven't yet finished reading the books because I was going to ask why would you do that to Amos, but then again, he also has uh, a good ending as well. Where did the inspiration for his character come from? He showed up when I he was there when I showed up. I yeah. uh, I'm going to leave that one for Ty. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there are, he, he has a lot of origin stories. He has multiple fathers. 
None of which would be particularly interesting to, <laughs> to your audience, I don't think. I'd give that a like a, a, a five out of ten in terms of elegant, um, <laughs> elegant, <laughs> elegant avoidance answers. Okay, so but I'll let you go on that one. Um, uh, are there going to be more TV series? Is there any interest from Amazon to do more because they there's still so many books that they could do? I I, I have an answer to that one. It is a canned answer. <laughs> And uh, I will. I, I give it to everybody. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny anything about further uh, anything with the expanse. That's that is a discussion you'd have to have with Alcon Entertainment, who owns the rights and who have been very good to us. Um, and apropos of nothing, I'm really enjoying the new ep- seasons of Justified and Futurama. I think they're great. <laughs> okay. That's that's unrelated though. Do you know what I always say when uh, guests on the show give us the, I can neither confirm nor deny that. I'll, <laughs> after that, I will say, I will note that that is not a hard no. So, <laughs> okay. Um, look, I'm a fan. I think you guys have given the world an incredible gift in the book series and, of course, uh, the TV series. So I just can't thank both of you enough. Thank you so much for, for talking with me and for the work that you do. Well, thank, thank you. you very much for having us, and thank you for, uh, you know, the the journalism and the uh, reflection of culture back onto itself, so we can we can actually think things through. Uh, that's 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 your job too. Nice work. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> we do what we can. Um, by the way, oh my God, I'm going to still go because I know I have both of you for another 15 yeah, yeah. minutes, go, go, go. but I won't. I go. won't. The, I the yeah. one of the many things that I love about the the books. Um, is that the characters are so sort of, this is a stupid way of putting it, so forgive me, but they're just so effortlessly diverse, right? In background, in various cultures. I mean, Holden's got, what, like eight parents, so that's a different kind new kind of diversity. Um, in their names and, and, and stuff. What I like is that, that was- it, do- it doesn't seem like it's, you know, you're not drawing attention to it as a as a feature of the world of the expanse, but it's still remarkable. You know what I mean? The 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 tactic that we used was to have things be present and uncommented. Yeah. Um, which worked well almost all the time. Not all the time though. <laughs> like when? Um, trans. Folks are really hard to include in an uncommented way because how would you know? Right. Okay. So there are trans folks, you know, in the expanse, but if they're not commenting on it, then how, you know, uh, we know. We, we're aware that that's part of the human experience now and in the future. Um, but we're also in a, a world where, you know, Regrowing limbs is trivial, mm-hmm. and gender reassignment would be trivial. And how would it come up? You know, uh, so yeah. that yeah, was no, I take that your was point. that was tricky. Yeah. That one was tricky. Okay, one more fan question. Um, I want to be sure I'm understanding ultimate the the explanation of the proto molecule eating entities, right? That sort of terrorize the ring gates. Um, is it that the the ring station was drawing power from the dimension or world of the 
the proto-molecule creator's enemies. And so therefore, that is why those sort of beings attacked again? <laughs> well, I mean, we, we remain deliberately vague because it's hard to have an inhuman alien uh, threat if you make it very explained and human. Um, so, so we, we, we tend to avoid explaining things, but the, the idea is that this, this bubble that has been created into their world or dimension or universe or whatever it is, whatever that explanation is, this bubble that has been created has, is, is generating power by the pressure of that space trying to crush it. So in the same way that you can build a dam and a river and the the pressure of the river behind the dam, the pressure of all that water allows you to generate electricity. It also means none of the fish can swim past. Uh -huh. And so if you were a fish and you wanted to get to the other side of the river, you'd be pissed that that dam was there, <laughs> um, and which is, you know, oversimplifying. But the idea kind of is what whatever they have done to create this bubble in this other dimension or universe or whatever it is. Um, and you're using it to generate power is an inconvenience of some kind to the the entities that live over on that other side, and they would like it to go away. I see. Okay. So I was close-ish. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and and how do you relieve the pressure? You destroy the dam, right? Okay. Right. I got it. Thank you. That was just purely like fan service that you gave me, so I really appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> um, again, I... It's very rare that I get a chance to just fully nerd out. So I really appreciate this. And Claire, our producer, will keep you guys up to date on when we're actually going to put this on the air. Um, obviously, in truth, only a small portion of it will uh, show up on our yeah. program. But I think oh, we're, yeah, we're going to figure out a way to get the, the majority of it, in at least in our podcast feed. because people Cut us down it. to a nice tight five. No! Yeah. <laughs> better no. that way. It's just better that way. <laughs> no, no, no. No. Uh, but we'll definitely get... I think most of it um, in into our podcast feed too. So we'll just keep you posted on all of that. Okay. Cool. All right. Thank you. Oh wait. Oh my God. Are you guys working on something like now that I can look forward to? Well, there's a couple of things we're we're uh, working on. We've got a, a a new trilogy that we're writing for Orbit. Um, it's called the Captives War, and we've turned in the first. Uh, draft of the first book of that and are waiting to hear back from our editor. And uh, do we talk about the other thing yet, Ty? Or is, is that... No, we don't really... We don't really talk about the other one yet? No, not Come yet. Come back in a think. couple of weeks. We'll talk some more about some other stuff. Okay, good. And I will look forward to finding out the, what the pub date for uh, for the next trilogy is. Oh, okay. so will we. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you both so much. I'll let you go now, but I really appreciated talking to you. It was a it was a blast. All right. Take care. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham are co-creators of the world of The Expanse. Listen to how we use the ideas from The Expanse to drive our show on whether AI is a powerful new argument for UBI. That episode is in our podcast feed. And if you haven't already please do consider subscribing. Thanks very much. This is On Point.